0: Rockheads. Time to end hibernation and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 421 with guest Derek Whittaker, recorded live Tuesday, February 3rd, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, www.code-magazine.com And now The man who watched in horror As the studio cleaning crew Downed his Macallan 21 Carl Franklin
1: Thank you, thank you very much And welcome back to .NET Rocks This is Carl Franklin This is Richard Campbell Hey, we're here for you Yes, we we are Twice a week Yep uh, not much happening in New London, except that we're getting some nice warm weather, finally. And when I say warm, when I say warm, I mean like, you know, 47 degrees Fahrenheit. You know, that's <laughs> 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 woohoo! Oh, boy. Yeah. I'm uh, heads down in the studio this week working on uh, a new solo album project, by the way. Yes, I've heard the first track, dude. It sounds awesome. Oh, I, I hired three monsters to come in and live yeah. in the studio for a week. And I mean monsters. These guys are serious players. And, uh, I, you know, my friend asked me, you know, why are you doing this? <laughs> like, what? because I can, because I want to. <laughs> That's what I've wanted to do all my life. So uh, I'm, I'm very happy, whereas, you know, the stuff I work on with my brother is kind of piecemeal you know one night a week kind of thing and it goes along very slowly just cuz you know he has a regular life, life like most people weird yeah weirdo and uh so th- this this way i was just able to to get in some players and some charts and oh man it's going to be awesome i'm looking forward to it man all right let's get in better know framework
2: all right
1: i just wanted to keep that that uh theme song running a little longer i know time. that's, that's <laughs> <laughs> it is pretty catchy isn't it it is you know, at first I was like, oh, what am I thinking? And what now, have you done? You know, people, you know, you hear that thing, you're like, okay, here we go. So today I'm going to talk about, again, more about WPF. We're going to talk about system.windows.markup, which is the namespace where all the XAML stuff is. Oh, okay. All the XAML goo is in system.windows.markup. Here's the description in the documentation. Provides types to support serialization and extensible application markup language, that's XAML, in Windows Presentation Foundation. Uh, also, this exists in Silverlight, too. In particular, contains classes to support XAML markup extensions and other language concepts that are defined by the XAML specification, reader-writer implementation classes, serializers, and attributes that report XAML characteristics to reflection-based analysis. Now, your experience with System Windows Markup has probably been System.Windows.Markup.XamlParseException. You know, Ah. this is a common thing that people get when their XAML is malformed and all of that kind of stuff. But the XAML reader, the XAML writer, all of that good, happy XAML stuff exists in that namespace. So know it, learn it, love it. System.windows.markup. Awesome. So what's happening in your neck of the woods, Richard? I got an email. You do? Yeah, yeah. What are the
3: chances of that? Yeah, shocking, isn't it? Yeah. You'll like this one. Hi, guys. Big fan of the podcast. Just thought I'd throw out a suggestion for a future show. Great. Of all the new technologies at PDC-08, my contention is that the biggest potential game changer is Astoria Offline. Ooh. Being able to auto-sync offline data with online data or sync across multiple devices seems to me to be more likely to change the landscape than either Azure or Windows 7. Especially when you think about extensibility, pulling custom data sources into the sync arena. Yeah, Live Mesh seems to have the same promise and is trying to deliver Ozzy's Mix 08 PDC 08 vision. But the problem is that it relies on your users signing up to be in the MS Live cloud. That seems like a big bet. But Astoria Offline and the Sync Framework are the plumbing goo that could allow apps to deliver the Aussie vision without mesh. So, Hmm. looking forward to hearing more about the Sync Framework and or Astoria Offline. Your show would be a great venue for spreading the word. Yeah. And that's from Sean Sexton. Wow, cool. Thanks. So, the good news, Sean, is we've already got a show coming up with... The Astoria guy himself, Pablo Castro. Pablo Castro. And he definitely talked about Astoria offline. So we'll get to yep. that part. But Sync Framework, I will get there. I yeah. promise you, we will get you your show. Have you used Live Mesh? I have indeed. Yeah, what do you think? I, it's cool, man. It's very interesting. Of course, you know, and my wife is using the the uh, um, file synchronizer for Live Mesh mm-hmm. as well. Yep. She just uses it routinely. She works with people remotely. And it's just a normal thing to use. Yep, I use it between my laptop and my desktop. It's a beautiful thing, It's a beautiful thing, Yep. So, uh, yep, Sync Framework, we'll get that one as well, and the Astoria offline coming up. And if you've got suggestions for shows, questions, comments, criticism, or just want to tell us you love us, send us an
1: email, at franklins.net. All right, let's uh, introduce our guest today. Uh, Derek Whitaker has over 10 years of experience developing, mentoring, and leading Microsoft-based products in a wide variety of professional fields. He's been working exclusively with .NET since its inception and has professional experience in both C-Sharp and VBnet. He also has been a follower and a practitioner of the agile concepts and techniques for the last four years. Derek is a C-Sharp MVP as well as a member of the ASP Insiders group. You can catch Derek online as a member of the blogging group Devlicious, which you can find at shrinkster.com slash 145c. Uh, because the actual URL is impossible to read, uh, or drop by the .NET-based screencast site he runs at www.dimecasts.net. Welcome, Derek. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. You're welcome. So I'm intrigued by your uh, your screencast site, dimecasts.net. I hadn't heard of this before. Tell me about it.
4: Well, it's, uh, it's essentially a site where I host, and I'm not the only author. I've got seven or eight other authors helping me out where I host uh, about 10-minute screencast on various .NET-based topics. The idea kind of started about a year ago when I was watching tons of other screencasts, but they all tend to be 30 minutes to an hour long.
2: Mm
4: -hmm. And in most scenarios, I find myself only wanting a few minutes worth of content. And it means you kind of have to scan through, and you'll find the areas you care about, watch that, and then skip it or throw it away or whatever the case may be. So I just kind of created the concept, and it's, it's taken off really, really well.
1: I really like the way you introduce the uh, you know the introductory video portion where you where it's actually you're typing <laughs> you're typing uh, into a black screen what what's going on it's pretty cool oh thanks so this is definitely this is
3: screencast for the ADD crowd
4: it is and uh, and in fact on the site when it, in the area where I talk about why how it was created and why I created it actually I think I may comment that myself. Thinking I have ADD, I couldn't sit through a twenty or thirty minute episode. Yeah. I need something that's about ten minutes, give or take. Uh, and I say give or take because some are six, some are twelve. Well, people give me grief on the name, but eh.
1: that's pretty good. So how'd you get into this business?
4: Uh, you know, I've been doing development. Really, only started in college. Uh, I'm not one of the you know the old old school guys where they've been coding since they were you know, in diapers. Uh, I pretty much started in college. Uh, when I left college, I started doing consulting work. And never really looked back. It's my it's my passion. I thought I wanted to do something else a couple years back. And fortunately, it didn't work out. And um, I'm doing this all over again.
1: Have you been um, working for yourself the whole time?
4: No, I I consulted for five years. Then I went to corporate world for a while. Uh, and then for about a year, I did the independent thing. And I, I really enjoyed that. But circumstances uh, needed that I needed to go back full-time. So I'm now full-time with a company... Uh, out of Raleigh, North Carolina.
1: Okay. What kind of stuff are you working on there?
4: Uh, we are a uh, healthcare based company, so we do a bunch of uh, healthcare software. Uh, I'm personally working on a project where we'll take medical data and transform it for sending to our vendors.
1: Ah, transforming medical data. That brings back horrible memories for me. <laughs>
4: <laughs> As I'm learning, yes, I understand. <laughs>
1: It's a very frustrating. Uh, uh, what was that specification? HL7. Oh yes. HL7, that's right. It's a
4: recommendation more than a standard from what I
1: hear. ICD-9 codes. Yep. All that yeah. stuff. It's a standard for any given
3: medical facility, just not standard between the medical facilities.
1: Right. Yeah.
4: And you know, and the goal of our project is to make it so that our app doesn't care about what format it's in. It just can translate and map correctly backwards and forwards, Uh, so it's going to be a fun little project.
1: This seems like a good job for BizTalk.
4: Actually, there are customized mapping solutions for HL7-specific industries or uh, needs.
2: So Hmm.
4: uh, what we're actually going to be doing is communicating with one of those engines uh, with our own proprietary format, let it map to whatever format our customer wants, and then Hmm. on the inbound side, it will map to our proprietary format and send along.
1: Now, in your bio, it says that you've been a follower of Agile practices? So um were you were you uh, were you right there with it when it, when it, when it all started or did it take you a while to sort of warm up to agile or how did that? Uh,
4: the agile development practices I kind of it kind of clicked with me from from the word go you know the unit test you know in terms of continual feedback and continual learning and all that stuff, the testing concepts kind of took a little while to grow on me because I was like many people who are new to testing, which is why write more code to test my code? Right. Um, But now I'm a huge advocate of testing. uh, I won't go as far as say as I'm a TDD purist. Yeah. I don't always write all my tests first. Mm -hmm. Uh, Test coverage is more important to me. Uh, But I I deeply believe in the agile concepts, and uh, part of what my role is now is to help train our own internal developers on those concepts.
1: Yeah, and and the internal developers that you're training are your typical non-agile developers. Is that it? The 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 nine-to-fivers, the corporate sort of methodology thing.
4: You know, actually, my onshore guys, uh, the guys I work with onshore, because we have a fairly decent offshore team, our onshore guys are all real smart guys, and they get it real quick. You know, and they get it and they buy into it, which is making my life really easy. Uh, the offshore guys, I think, get it. I'm relatively new to the company, so I'm still trying to learn and understand. But anytime you offshore, you have that culture differences and a uh, little bit of language barrier. Uh, so it's going well. It's like any agile adoption; it's not something you flick, flip a switch and it automatically is you know, golden. You know, it's going to take 12 to 18 months, I think. But we're doing the right thing.
3: Yeah. So, n Hibernate. I see you've jumped into this recently, and and most folks that I've talked to, I talk to, it's rare to find someone new to N Hibernate. They're either long-time believers, or they haven't done it.
4: You know, I've been a long-time believer of the ORM concepts and philosophies. Uh, But most projects I started or worked on were not new, and they had a legacy data access strategy in place. Right. And backing in one of those, maybe as a contractor or even as a new guy in the company, wasn't going to work. I wasn't going to be able to back in ORM strategy.
3: So you finally got yourself a greenfield project and you had the opportunity to design a new data access layer?
4: Exactly. You know, and we this is actually I've been using Link to SQL for a while and I like it. It has its place, but in the Enterprise Ready app I don't think it's right there yet. Um, so I thought I'd give uh a Hibernate a try. And the entire team, myself included, has to learn it. And we've been doing it now for about a month. And what's really cool is the whole Twitterverse. I can eat I can twit something and say, Can you do this? And getting the answer and the help is phenomenal. Uh, But so far, it's been going really well. You know, uh, Using Fluent and Hibernate to do my mappings, I think, is the right key.
3: So what is Fluent and Hibernate? Yeah, tell us about that.
4: So if you're familiar with Hibernate, you obviously have to create your HBM files, which are your mapper files, which tell and hibernate how to interact with your database and how to map your data to your appropriate entities and your properties with your entities and create all your relationships. In the past, when I've played with in Hibernate, just, you know, toy projects, I've always been frustrated with the XML because you mistype something here, you don't know the keyword there, and it's just real painful. Uh, a group of guys, and I don't know how long it's been around, maybe six or eight months, decided that that was bad. So they created this project called Fluent and Hibernate, where you create your mappings through a fluent interface. And for the most part, you really can't screw up your mapping. You know, they built a really nice...
1: What's a fluent interface?
4: Um, so, it's, it's a, the Fluent DSL syntax, so it, it's very descript, descriptive. So, uh, you know, for example, if I want to map a property on my entity, I don't need to worry about how the XML syntax is. I basically just say, map this property. And I use some Lambda syntax, and I tell it what property on my entity to map. And if it's an auto-generated key, I can tell it generated by, and then I hit dot, and it gives me the various options. So it kind of walks walks you through the various options that are available to you.
1: Interesting. I'm looking at the Fluent and Hibernate uh, website, and there's an example there of this of this DSL, and uh, versus the XML that you would normally do. And there, I got to say, it's much cleaner and much easier to understand.
4: It is. It's just You know, it takes away a lot of the noise that newbies like myself. Yeah. You know, have to have to listen to and look at. You know. I, For the first week or so, I was frustrated as I'll get out, because as a new guy to to hibernate, I knew what I wanted to do, but I had no clue in the syntax or the terminology. I didn't even know how to Google what I was wanting to find, because I didn't know what the, the terms were.
3: Right. And so a DSL here, I mean, we've just been having these conversations around how practical is a DSL. Here you're seeing... Uh, specifically in a scenario of, I'm not all that familiar with this, but I know what I want to do, and the DSL sort of gives you the language to express that.
4: Yeah, and it, it, it's it's a wonderful thing in these scenarios. I think I'm a fan of the whole DSL concept, and it's not a new concept by any means, but I think people, me myself included, are starting to use them too often, and in some cases makes life more complicated. This scenario, I think it makes it a whole lot easier.
3: Now, the question would be, if you as you get more familiar with and hibernate, can you see yourself going away from the DSL?
4: I don't think so. I don't think I want to deal with the XML.
1: Yeah, I would say I, I would convert me too.
4: What's really nice about it is with this single line in my config, I can actually still output the XML files, and I do that all the time because if something's not mapping right, because just because it's a fluent interface doesn't mean you can't screw it up. Right. Yeah. You know, if, if I'm trying to do a a one to many mapping with a many to one mapper. Well, it's not going to work. Well, if you go Google anything, it's not going to give you the syntax for Fluent Hibernate and give you the raw HBML syntax. So having that file to look at and compare against still is very, very useful.
3: So in some ways, you're able to just tell Fluent, get out of the way, show me what you made, and then you're back into the plumbing of N- Hibernate. Exactly.
4: And in fact, you can still use you know, standard HBML fi- HBM files and Fluent in Hibernate you know, in the same project. Because since it's relatively new, most people have been around, you know, most projects have been around for a while. They are, have dozens, if not hundreds, of these files laying around. You know, that's a pretty big cost just to convert them to give you no additional functionality.
3: Yeah. So, yeah, I'm still struggling with this sort of, do you see N Hibernate as sort of an object's first approach to, to building the, uh, the data access layer?
4: I do. And in, in my scenario at work, um, we have a legacy database. It's about 10 years old like any database that's 10 years old, it's not what most people would consider optimal. So I've been able to build my domain model the way I think it needs to be done and then just kind of shove the mappings to make it work. And it seems to be working out pretty well for me. You know, so it allows me to not worry about how my data structure is, because if I built my app off the data structure in my case,
3: right. oh, it'd be horrible. Yeah. Now, the only fear is that, that, that of course, now the DBA kicks in me kicks in and says, I'm going to get a database from this generation process that isn't going to be good for anything else. That if you, somebody's going to ask me to want to write reports against it or to build an OLAP cube against it or anything like that, and I'm really going to struggle.
4: Uh, so you're talking about starting from a clean system and building your DB off your schema. All right. Yeah. See, I've not. I can't say I've terribly experienced that, um, but I can see how a DBA would have fear of that.
3: I'm, so you're not actually totally greenfield here. There is no. an existing data infrastructure you're dealing with.
4: Yes, in fact, I am not going to tweak the data, data structure in any way, shape, or form. Okay. Um, I've got 10 years worth of code sitting on top of this data structure that if I touch it, tweak it, change it, now I'm responsible for fixing it everywhere else in the app. So I have a Greenfield app in terms of functionality, but Brownfield in terms of database.
1: Tell me about your experiences, um, your first experiences when you, maybe you first use Structure Map or something, but you you uh, went to use an IOC container and, and a version of control container. And, and what did that do to the quality of your software? Like what was the change?
4: Well, I thought, it, I shouldn't say I thought, I know it brought me a lot of good separation. You know, that's the big thing around IOC is separation concerns is right. responsibility. responsibility. Um, I actually started using it like a lot of people probably. I started because it simplified my testing needs. I then understood where the power in ILC came in later on. Um, but I, I'm a firm believer now that pretty much any of my dependencies get injected, regardless if it's not, with an ILC container or not, because sometimes you can't use something like structure map uh, on, a, on a Brownfield app, maybe. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we use it quite heavily uh, within our current project and our current code base. You know, we're going as far as using profiles, so I can swap out profiles depending on, uh, in our case, the message type. You know, I completely swap out the back end.
1: Are you using Mox?
4: We do use Mox. I'm a big fan of Mox. I'm a, a big believer in the tool Rhino Mox. Mm-hmm. Uh, i done a great job on that product.
1: Uh, yeah, he's amazing.
4: Well, I don't know how the man sleeps.
1: <laughs> he doesn't. That's I don't simple. Think he does. He's mutant.
2: <laughs> and, you
4: know, and, and back to the N- Hibernate thing, the, the new tool he just put out, an N- N- hibernate profiler, is a must-have for anybody. And if you're a newbie like myself, you've got to have it.
3: So in Hibernate Profiler showing what in Hibernate is doing?
4: It creates, somehow he hooks into the stream that generates all the SQL. And he's outputting uh, it to a a nice WPF app. And it'll tell you all the SQL. And he's even gone as far as uh, structuring it so it's properly indented. And you can copy and paste and put that in your query analyzer right down there, run it. Uh, He even goes a step further and will say, you know what, you're doing something wrong here. Here's a better way to do your mappings. Wow. So, you know, as a newbie, I'm trying to figure out how to map things. And I'm looking at my SQL going, oh, well, that's why. Because I'm trying to use, you know, column A, and it's telling me I'm using column B. Well, I'm obviously doing something wrong somewhere.
3: Hmm. Well, and I like, I, I'm getting this this warm feeling now, seeing sort of a suite of tools built up around in Hibernate, uh, between this profiler and Fluent, like it's all these bits to sort of facilitate uh, you know, the regular developer just wanting to get his app built using this ORM product. Yeah,
1: you know, that as we've said it before, that without these tools, you'd really be, uh, I mean, the, the work would be, it would be more work to do this without these tools.
4: Like any other new tool, whether it be in Hibernate or, you know, I'll, I'll say it, Entity Framework, or if you're going to say an IOC container or anything, there's always a learning curve. It's always how steep is it and how much pain are you willing to except mm. to get over that hump. Mm. With the new tools, fluent uh, within Hibernate Profiler, in particular, the the learning curve is still very steep, but I was able personally able to get over it within a few weeks. You know, now there's now the scenarios I'm stumped are things I haven't thought about and things I've never done before. Mm. You know, you're not you're not in traditional mapping scenarios.
3: Mm. Yeah, and and in, I guess that's the issue I'm, that folks are struggling with in general with ORM is all of those edge cases that I'm going to get 85% of the way through this app, and then I'm going to hit something that is really an obstacle. The proverbial brick wall. Yeah. I hit I hit the wall.
4: And I've run into that a few times. Uh, fortunately, the Fluent and Hibernate guys are really receptive to suggestions. And uh, James Gregory in particular has added a few patches for me. Simply all I am go, does it do this? No, it doesn't. But give me a few minutes.
2: <laughs> I love
3: that. <laughs> Just give me a minute.
4: That's, that's the power of open source. You know, it's great. You know, uh, a commercial product, you probably couldn't do that with.
1: Maybe, what are, maybe not quite what, that fast. What are some of the obstacles that you hit, if you don't mind telling us in, in as much detail as you need?
4: Uh, some of them have been simply understanding the, the mappings. My database structure in particular has a huge amount of composite keys. So trying to understand how to map all these tables that relate to each other via composite keys of different types. Some, you know, in some scenarios, one key is an int and the other key is a uh, character field. Hmm. You know, it, trying to understand what hmm. really is a one-to-one versus a you know one-to-many or many-to-one mapping scenario.
1: So you're talking about because the database was designed kind of strangely.
4: I think so. Yeah. Um, you know, in a lot of our scenarios, we have column A that has a column. Let's just say it's foo. And it's a primary key. But in table B, when, it, when you link to table B, it's not called foo anymore.
3: Oh, nice. Something different. I love that. Nice. Yeah. But, you know, this. these are the legacy things we deal with. And every so often you find some place where instead of creating a separate table for a repeating column, they've actually repeated the columns as a foo, one, two, and three. Oh.
4: <laughs> we actually yeah. have a table that. We store IDs of physicians, and uh-huh. they're in line. Well, I don't want those in line. I want a list of physicians.
3: Oh, man.
4: You know, unfortunately, in hybrid, it makes that very easy. I can do that very easily.
3: So you're able to decompose that sort of mutant table structure.
4: Yes. You know, in <laughs> one, of, one of our tables, it's the only one I've found this way where it actually has a phone number in the address table. Ugh. Well, I don't uh. want the phone number in the address table. I want a list of contact numbers. Yep. So I can map that into a a list. Now, grant the list only have one, but I can do that very easily. So what's really nice is my other developers that really haven't dug too much into hibernate don't really care how the data model is. They just know here's the entities I'm I'm grabbing and I can use them this way.
3: Well, and this is interesting because you mean, obviously you're deeply immersed in making this data access layer work, but then effectively you're building services for other developers. So what, what do they need to know? Are they actually, you know, calling to database connections at all? Or, you know, what do the calls look like uh, that, that you've built for them?
4: Well, in our scenario, they're simply calling a repository method. So, you know, say I want to grab patient information. They just call, you know, patient repository dot get, you know, admission information, whatever the case may be. And they don't care. They just get the patient information back that's for admission or something. Um, So they don't really care how it's built, how it's structured, how it's joined. Am I doing lazy loading or eager loading? What's the where clause look like? They don't care. They just know they get an object tree back. And if there's value there they need to pull out, they just simply pull them out. In our app, we actually go a step further. We we have to map our data structure, which is very tree-based, to a flat structure. So we actually have an extra layer where we have to build in mapping files um, to flatten out a lot of things. Because... uh, the HL7 standard and format doesn't really care about list of things; it just wants them all in line. You know, so the goal is create all the mappings. If I need a new create new mapping, do so. But I, as a general rule, nobody else needs to know how that stuff really works. Although they do know, and they are learning.
1: Is there anything? Is there any uh, sort of challenge you came up against which actually required you to change the database?
4: Uh, no, there were a few scenarios originally where actually had to get step out of Fluent and Hibernate and go to the mapping files directly. Uh, those have been resolved by the uh, the, uh, the, office, the open source team. Uh, we have had to make some, some table changes, but that was simply to add new features, new columns. Um, we've done some funky stuff where we've encapsulated how the data is actually stored in the database and stored in our object model.
2: So
4: we've done some things, but no, I... I I'm refusing to modify the database in any way, shape, or form, if I can help it.
1: Do you have a Do you have a DBA, or are you the DBA?
4: We do have a DBA. Uh, it's part of our offshore team, and they really haven't been told we're doing this.
2: Oh, wow.
4: My VP knows, and uh, considering I'm the architect on the team, I guess I have the authority to do this. But I, I have a feeling I'm going to have the battle at some point you know the performance battle and the optimization well, battle.
1: Well, what about the security battle? Does the DBA know your code has access to the tables and things?
4: Uh well, that is another issue altogether for our application in general. Um without going into specifics, but it, our app in general has direct access to the table.
3: Okay. Well, and and which is pretty much a requirement if you're going to make something like in our Hibernate or any ORM work. Sure.
4: Yeah, you know I guess we could use a user that restricts, you know, update permissions, and you know, uh, you know maybe we only only can read on certain things and update on other things. Uh, but so far, I, hope, I haven't run into that, and I don't think I'm going to have too much of a pushback. But that's a uh, battle that might be playing out here in the next few months.
1: Yeah, it's a common common issue. It is. This portion of .NET Rocks. is brought to you by our very good friends at Telerik. Hey, don't you sometimes wish the Internet was more like television? Instead of looking for some info scattered all over the place, you pick up the remote control, sit back, and enjoy browsing through hundreds of channels. Well, your dreams might be coming true with an exciting new resource brought to you by Telerik, the Telerik TV video portal. Telerik TV is a gateway to all Telerik video resources, webinars, product videos, how-tos, training materials, and much more. The videos are organized in a way that makes it easy to find answers to your problems or discover new tips and tricks as you browse various video channels. What's more, Telerik TV was built using Telerik's own rad controls for ASP.NET, AJAX, and Open Access ORM, making it a great showcase of those products. So go on, pick up the remote and start watching Telerik TV today at tv.telerik.com. Real question mark is is it a sign of great app
3: design and, and great data access layer that we don't need to involve DBAs in the construction of a new application against existing data structures? Or is it actually, you know, a problem that they have to be involved and it, everything is fine right up until you have to call them and say, yeah, we've got this app and, and the, the database is just not performing well enough for what we want to do.
4: If it comes down to a performance issue, uh, you probably need somebody that's more highly skilled in that area. You know, I've, I've been the de facto DBA in numerous projects over the years, but I'm not a DB guru. Right. I know how to use the analyzers and the profilers when to try to tweak out some speed. But I think there's always a need for somebody that says, you know, we need a better performing application. And There's always someone that can find those areas. What key, you know, what, uh, what indexes are you missing? Are you using your join drawing? Those, those type of cases. But let's be honest. In most business apps, the difference of a few milliseconds doesn't make a difference.
3: Well, and yeah, that's absolutely true. And and it, the problem is that it's not a few milliseconds. It's I go off and do this, and it's gone for twenty seconds or thirty seconds, and that's a big deal.
4: Well, in that scenario, yeah, then then hopefully your team notices that's an issue.
1: Need
3: hope.
4: Not wait for the DBA.
1: Derek, does your app use any third party tools?
4: Uh, ours is an API, so the only tools we're using are open source tools. Okay. Uh, our applic our core application uses dozens of third party tools. Okay.
1: You're just working on the API.
4: Yeah, we, we're disconnected from the main application uh, entirely.
1: Is it, um, is it accessible through a, a web service or any kind of service whatsoever, a REST service perhaps? or is, it, uh, is it? it
4: is. Right now it's through a WCF service, both if you want to request a message to be sent inbound and as well as to receive a message. Mm-hmm. Uh, due to some limitations with our mapping engine, that, that I guess technically is a third-party product, uh, we may have to switch over to a REST-based service. Uh, the mapping product we're using to having a hard time consuming our services.
1: And are you using any kind of uh, SOA principles in terms of separation of databases and things? Like
4: uh, not in this scenario. Uh, basically, the, the the pipeline is someone makes requests and it's all self-contained in this little thing. Yeah. Um, you know, the the data layer is separating so we don't have direct access to the database elsewhere in the code. But it's not doing any service-related calls, no.
1: Did you follow the whole uh, uh, service-oriented architecture movement as it sort of came and went? (laughs) (laughs) Dare I say?
4: (laughs) Um, Yes and no. I never worked on a true project. I guess I take that back. I did work on a project where every request to the server was done via web service. And mm-hmm. they thought that was a service related or service oriented yeah. architecture. Mm. Um, I technically kind of was, uh, but it was bad, badly done. Yeah, I personally subscribe to the service concept. Uh, you know, if I'm building an application, my UI layer interacts with my business layer via service, but not necessarily a web service. Uh, it's more of like a, uh, a facade layer.
3: Right. What's interesting in this situation, I'm still hung up on the performance challenge. Here is mm-hmm. you. You're middleware. You don't own the UI. You don't own the database. You're building this translation layer. Everybody's going to blame you for everything. <laughs> oh, of
4: course. And in <laughs> fact, uh, we are already, are already building monitoring or diagnostics tools uh, because we don't really have a mandate that says we have to have a throughput of 10 a second or 100 a second or whatever it can right. be. But we need to monitor how long it takes us to grab all the data, how long does it takes us to map all the data. Hmm. Uh, sadly... The bottleneck will be sending the data outbound. Uh, right. When we send the data to the mapping engine, it's going to be via web service. Yeah. You know, in our early test show that can take as little as two seconds or as long as a minute. Right. Not really sure why. Um, so we're going to have to pay attention to that quite extensively uh, and build a bunch of mapping tools, uh, diagnostic based tools.
3: Yeah, I could see you wanting lots of sort of instrumentation just so that you know what, when it's your part of the app, how long it took and all that good stuff.
4: Yes, and we also have to build in, for various other reasons, a bunch of tools that tell us where our data is at any point in time. You know, if something failed, where did it fail? Why did it fail? Our failure, our external third party, because it gets a little more complicated. Somebody tells my little API to do something. That's a disconnect. They send me a message, and then they they disconnect, and they assume it works. Yeah, right. Then I build something. I send it to an external mapping engine. I assume it works. That mapping engine then sends it to our customer's mapping engine. They assume it works. So we have to, we have to, you know, kind of do this, you know, ask these questions along the way and create status logs in the database so that we know that when the message was sent outbound from us, was it actually received by our mapper, and when they sent it, was it received? Did they get acknowledgement from the other end? You know, so you have to build a, a bunch of diagnostic tools into it uh, just for compliance reasons.
1: Did you ever try to do this um, before ORMs with code generation tools?
4: I have. um, We've done code gen. I've done, you know, I hate to admit it, but we actually built our own crude ORM a number of years ago. Mm -hmm. And it worked. uh, But we weren't in the business of building those tools. Uh, I'm less a fan of code gen nowadays than I used to be. Mm -hmm. And that's mostly because I like to know what my code does. Yeah. You know, and I understand that if I'm just genning up a bunch of you know entities or DTOs mm. or something like that, you know mm. maybe I can save myself a few man days. Mm. But I, I like somebody to put thought into effort into everything they do. Mm. Good point.
1: Especially it's you know if if any of that code needs debugging, now you're now you're really losing some time, aren't you?
4: Yeah, you know if you spend a day, uh, you know spend you know debugging something that should have taken you five seconds. Mm. You know uh, I have a great story on that. A number of years ago, when we built our own. ORM um, and you know use codegen tools. We had a really slick little uh, you know framework, very CSLA like. Uh, we didn't really know CSLA exists at the time. One of my mid-level or junior developers on our team spent a day trying to debug something. couldn't get couldn't figure out where this weird error kept coming from. He finally came over and asked one of one of the seniors on the team, and we knew exactly what the error was, but only because we had written the thing. But he 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 basically churned for an entire day. Because of a white space and an attribute. Oh wow! You know, so it, some of those things I've learned the hard way. Some of them, you know, uh, you just do it
1: anyways. What about um, template-based code, Jen? Where you're actually writing the code, you know, except for the details. Uh,
4: you mean where I'm genning? Like,
1: the... yeah, you write a template. Um, let's say you write a template class that needs to be replicated a couple of times for different entities or different scenarios. And, uh, and it's just putting in, you know, you have sort of placeholder things where it's going to fill in some details.
4: I have not done that recently, and I, I really, I guess I don't have a strong opinion one way or another. Yeah. Because, again, like you said, you are kind of building, you know, your your code. You're just doing it in so it's regenerable. Right. Um, I guess I still go back to, I'd rather see somebody on my team write it. Mm. Just so that they know everybody's intimate with the code.
3: Mm-hmm yeah there's an interesting span between you know stuff you want them to write so that it's owned and stuff that could be gotten somewhere else either through a generation I mean really you know what are we getting out of n other than something to write an awful lot of that translation code for us so we don't have to
2: own it
4: and you're right so you know on one hand I'm saying I don't like code gen tools but on the other hand I am saying that I do like these tools I do it for me but right. the difference is if I'm creating a code gen and I'm creating the mappings I'm responsible for those mappings. and I have to test it and thoroughly test it and mm. blah, blah, blah. Whereas then Hibernate or, you know, Rhinomox or StructureMap or an or any of these other tools that is becoming mainstream now, I I put faith in the community to have flushed out the vast majority of the bugs. Right. Mm. You know, and, and I have faith that if there is an issue, either I patch it myself, which I've done on a few different occasions, or I a you know, request to the various you know, uh, group, and they'll get something relatively quickly. In fact, using an ironate I wasn't going to at first uh, with this particular project because I didn't know if I could bring everybody up to speed on testing. So That's part of what I'm trying to do, too, is you know, drive home the test concepts and you know, separation concerns and the whole solid principles and mocking and the whole nine yards, along with using an ORM. But after about a day of writing, like procs, like, yeah, I'm done.
3: Yeah, you'd lost interest in that.
4: Yeah, you know, uh, it was just too tedious. When I'm when I'm selecting all the data out, and I'm going, okay, data reader get int equals this, you know, set it to this property. Get string set to this. Like, you know, I'm done. Uh,
2: <laughs>
4: why should I have to do that? There are tools, whether it's in Hibernate or, you know, you know, uh, link to SQL or entity framework or LLBLgen or any of these other tools. There's someone out there that's done it. They reinvented that wheel. I'm not going to. Well,
3: and it's, and it's interesting to hear you th- not sound like a pioneer, right? Like you, you weren't looking for the latest and greatest technology here. You're thinking this stuff's been around long enough that I can trust it. Or maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but you know the the, the language I hear coming from you is not of one of try, someone trying to push the envelope, but rather the most efficient way to work.
4: Well, there's a time to push the envelope and there's a time to get the product out the door. Right. And, you know, we have, like everybody else, relatively tight deadlines. And there's not really time to push the envelope on this project or most projects in general. You know, uh, if you're paying somebody by the hour, maybe they want to push the envelope because they're getting paid by the hour and maybe I just offended a bunch of consultants. Um, Right. (laughs) But at the end of the day, everything aside, your business needs to get something out the door. If that means roll my own, or if it means buy it, or use somebody else's, that's what we ought to do.
3: I'm just amused to hear and Hibernate and RhinoMox considered non-pioneering products. This is a core best practice sort of approach to building software. It was the most efficient way to work.
4: And hopefully, I'm not the nor- or I'm not the edge case. You know, I know yeah. our little echo chamber. You know, I consider myself part of the All About movement, and you know, when I'm on Twitter, everybody's on Twitter. Kind of has the same philosophies. You know, so within the low echo chamber, I think those are the normal tools. Right. I'm hoping over the next, you know, 12 to 18 months or a couple of years, that this becomes just the norm in general. You know, why why do these things? You know, when you introduce an IOC container, and it can be any one of the five or six out there, and they all do the same thing essentially. Um, but why why construct objects yourself? That's just painful. You know, and if you're if you're not using an IOC container, you're probably tightly binding your stuff, you know, and you're just making testing more more complicated. You're making your code more brittle, you know, and I think the solid principles as they start moving away from that's an agile concept to that's just a software development or software engineering concept. uh, Hopefully those, these tools will become super mainstream.
3: Yeah. Well, you want, you really want to be at a point where it's almost a duh kind of why would you work any other way?
4: You know, uh, when, I, when I start any new project, whether it's myself, you know, a little custom app for myself, or it's a corporate app, you know, uh, first thing I go do is download NUnit, go download, you know, Structure Map, go download RhinoMox, you know, go download all these third party open source tools because to me that's just my tool chest. Yeah, I'm hoping that that becomes the norm throughout the industry.
1: Absolutely. Well, they are the norm though. I mean, they the alt.net movement is, is not, you know, alternative. I mean, it might be alternative to Microsoft, but these tools have gotten a lot of traction and there's just a group of people that have, have, uh, you know, made it easier for, for everyone else to sort of see the value in these things.
4: They have. And, you know, uh, there are good days and bad days with the alt, alt movement. You know, there are a lot of people in the, in the organization or in the, I don't want to say organization, but in the, in the group that are very outspoken. And in some cases they get taken out of context or in some cases they actually speak out of context. I think everybody in the group, you know, has the right ideas in mind. Um, but what's really been nice is we are always behind the Java community, it sounds like, and it seems like, and all of our tools. Well, we're now, I think, starting to catch up a little bit. You know, yeah. and We're trying to build this sense of community where I'm not just, a, you know, to use the, the Microsoft term, I'm more working at a corporation, just doing my nine-to-five job and not really caring. I'm actually taking an interest in what I'm doing because what we do is very important. Yeah, it sure is. And if you don't, you know, keep educating yourself and you know keep you know expanding your tool set, you're just going to turn into a dinosaur.
3: Yes, sir. Let me change gears a little bit here. You're using MVC for the Dimecast.net website.
4: I am uh, since preview two, I think.
3: You are a brave man.
4: Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's been painful at times.
3: Well, and it's just exciting to see a site up and running using the infrastructure, and, and you know talk about dog food like that's a challenging stuff.
4: Yeah, you know, it, up until Stack Overflow came out, I think I may have been the most traffic trafficked at M- MVC site. When Stack Overflow came out, they well, I just blew everybody out of the water. Right. But it's been a lot of fun, you know, uh, being part of the inside group, insiders. I get early access to a lot of the bits. So that's kind of made some of it a little easier, and you know, we get access to say, you know, Guthrie or Handsome or Hack, please change this. We don't like this, and they've been really receptive, in my opinion. Uh, but I love the framework. Uh, as a traditional WinForm guy, it just made perfect sense to me. You know, every time I start playing with, you know, I guess it's being called Classic ASP.NET now. I love that. <laughs> you know, I saw that term the other day. I'm like, really? I guess it's still web form, but <laughs> yeah, right. now it's classic ASP.net.
1: Once you've had Already? the new Coke, you have to go back to classic.
4: Yeah. Yeah. But every time I start playing with it, I'm like, I don't care. What's this post-back thing? It's just too painful for me. You know, I get the whole HTTP concept. I get what a get is and a post is. You know, and the MVC just made made sense. It clicked. Not to mention it just kind of goes with, the, in my opinion, the solid principles of this separation of concerns.
3: Right. I mean, it, that's really what it seems to me that an, the core concept, advantage of MVC is the idea of building a web app that has proper separation of concerns.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and, and I like to hear the team and a lot of people argue the testability aspect of it, and I argue it myself, but I, I wish that that wouldn't be the focus and that the focus would be allowing people to build solid, extendable, maintainable applications simply because it does offer the separation concerns out of the box.
3: That being said, I just poke around on the Dimecast site and, like, dude, tables really?
4: Oh yeah. Divs. Um, I'm, again, I'm not a I'm not a traditional web web guy. It shows. <laughs> um, when I built the app, uh, it was uh, from start to finish. It took about a month. That included in recording the first dozen or so episodes. Yeah. So it was just a matter of get the thing out the door.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah.
4: And divs uh, I get them for the most part but they're they're just painful for me so tables work
3: yeah well and what I find fascinating here is that they're literally looking at your your HTML and boy I'm just showing off my geekiness here <laughs> uh, it's a flashback it's like it's 1996 all over again right it's really this this page would probably render just fine
1: in Netscape 2 but you know what though it renders fine in IEA too yeah well,
4: that's good because Honestly, I don't test it, and I eat too much.
1: Yeah. Um, how done is your API? Like, how much further do you have to go, and do you foresee any any gotchas in the near future? Like, is there, you know how everybody always leaves the most difficult features till the end, and then, well, not everybody, but that's a common thing, right? You you know, you do the low-hanging fruit first, and then then you tackle the tough problems, and sometimes the tough problems will absolutely derail you. Do you see any of that coming down the pike, or is it just a matter of finishing?
4: I think it's a matter of finishing. We're only about a month into it. Uh, we, we just started our third two-week sprint. Hmm. So in, we are only focusing on sending data outbound, not receiving data inbound. Mm-hmm. Um, most of our big hurdles have been dealing with our third-party uh, mapping tool hmm. and getting that to work accurately. And all of us, uh, two of the three guys on the team are new to the HL7 format. Mm-hmm. So just just understanding how that works. I think our biggest issue is just going to be trying to figure out how to put the data back into our system when when we receive an inbound message.
1: Going the other way.
4: Yeah, outbound's easy, <laughs> and we did start with that.
1: <laughs> so I was looking at your blog and I saw that um, that post about uh, when, when didn't I, how come corporate IT never got the memo that disk space is cheap? What's <laughs> that, that was story? A, that was an
4: interesting post. If you read all the comments.
1: Yeah, I didn't read all the comments, but tell the story anyway.
4: You know, I get this email, and I get it every day, and I delete it every day. That I'm over my disk space on my Outlook, and uh, I think our corporate store, uh limit is 50 or 75 meg, which isn't unheard of. It's pretty much the norm anywhere you go. But from from a total outside IT perspective, I don't care how the servers work. I'm not a, I'm not a server geek. Um, as far as I'm concerned, disk space is cheap. Give me terabytes of storage, right? You know, and, and That's all I want. I don't want to have to delete emails, you know, know, especially things that have attachments on them because, you know, uh, people could say, put them on your hard drive. Yeah, but I'll never find them on my hard drive. (laughs) You know, uh, what I did learn and never really thought about from that post was the compliance issues. Never really gave thought to the whole, if you give somebody three gig of storage, you're now legally liable for that three gig of storage if something comes up. You know, so from that perspective, I get it, but man, I just want storage space.
3: Yeah, yeah, and, it, and the reality is, you, you're you're using your email as a filing system
4: because it's easily searchable.
3: <laughs> right. That that's that's really the, the core ingredients there, but and obviously, there's somebody inside the organization that doesn't
1: feel that way.
4: And our, our organization is not unique. Uh, a lot of people have that same constraint.
1: I'm uh, so lucky. Yeah, I'm so lucky. I don't work for the man.
2: I <laughs> would have stuff, no patience with that want. stuff
1: I really I'd be fired in a week
3: <laughs> <laughs> well and it, and maybe you're running into this Derek but like one of the thing, interesting changes that's happened I think in the past few years is that it used to be that the most powerful computer in your life was the one at the office and that's just not the case anymore no you know we own better machines at home than the ones that our companies have. And it really is sort of tweaking the dynamic, especially for someone who's just coming into the workforce today, you know, who's got this laptop under their arm that's twice the machine of any machine in the office.
4: Which is really pathetic. You know, uh, As, as a, a developer who's getting paid a decent sum of money, shouldn't I have the world's fastest machine whenever it comes out and as often as it comes out? Isn't it to the benefit
3: of the company? Well, and it, you know, it used to be that way. Yep. It used to be we were, as as and I, I'm putting on my IT hat today, as IT guys, we were on the treadmill of you swap up the machines every 18 months because it's a productivity thing and the cost of the machines are relevant in comparison, mm-hmm. which I buy into for devs, not so much for, for everyone else, but certainly on the dev perspective, yep. you know, compile times cost money. Mm-hmm. Right. But uh, we fell off that, and I blame Microsoft for this, uh, with... XP having such long legs because usually we were upgrading our machines with OS's. And uh, the dot com bust was the other big one where all of a sudden budgets were smashed. And so we skipped an upgrade cycle and nobody died. Right. And all of a sudden there was this sort of looking around going, huh, maybe we don't have to upgrade the machines every, you know, 18 months. And uh, and suddenly yeah, I feel like companies are now hanging on their computers more than they've ever had before.
4: Yeah, I get mine for three years.
3: Hmm. And and the jump in three years is stunning. Well, if something really tells
4: me in about 18 months, I will use my own.
3: Yeah. Well, and therein lies the interesting issue is this. Now we have folks, especially you know new employees, younger folks coming out of college and things that are showing up with their own machine and it's dramatically better and they're dramatically more productive with it, but it's theirs, not the company's.
4: Hmm. Uh, I worked for a dot-com a few years ago that half the team brought their own machines in. Right. For that exact reason. Now, no. in this particular case, uh, we ended up able to show numbers on compile times. So a team of 20 people that we were churning about an hour a day and compiling you know, per person. Right. And you know, they did go out and drop massive amounts of money on new hardware for us.
1: Added up over the course of a year.
4: Oh, yeah. I, uh, if you buy me a new, let's just go expensive desktop, let's go desktop, $3,000 desktop once a year. Divide that by the amount of hours I work in the de- in the year. It's nothing. Yep. You know, at the end of the year, you give it to somebody in the county and give me a new one. Right. You know, get, Let me keep my big old monitor. And that's something else I don't get either. <laughs> a lot of people, a lot of corporations are, here's your 15-inch LCD.
3: Yeah. Oh, boy.
4: I'll bring in my own. Thanks for, uh, yeah. thanks for sharing. Because 1024
3: nice. by 768 should be enough for anybody.
4: <laughs> you know, uh, now, I got two twenty twos on my desk. I, I want bigger still.
3: And then, are, they, are they 16 by 12s or are they 1920
4: by 1200s? Uh. 19, 16 by 12. My laptop's 19 by uh 19. 16 by what at 1050, and my laptop's 19 by 12.
3: I'm just gonna stick the stake in the ground here, guys, and remind everybody the correct display configuration for a developer is 4960 by 1600.
4: Amen, bro. 4960.
3: So we put a 30-inch dual-link DVI screen in the center, which is. Uh 2560 by 1600, and then we hang two 20 inch L C D panels that are sixteen by twelve in the portrait position on either side. Preach
1: on, Brother Campbell.
3: Because sixteen hundred high is the means a much more visible code at once. You have wing screens for your help information, for your email, your commentary, for your running space. IM. Gentlemen, more screen space good. Yep. For a developer, and it's not just for developers. Oh, I, I think the dual screen rig is should be de facto for everybody. But I think devs can actually use a forty nine sixty
1: by sixteen hundred display. You will use it. I have two thirties, and I use it not only for development, but I use it for uh, for audio as well and, and video editing, where screen space is premium. Yeah, yeah.
4: I actually had a, was at a shop a few years ago where we uh, where I was building a point of sale system. And I had two 19s and two 8-inch eight screens. Because our point of sale was on the 8-inch screens. Mm-hmm. Right. And the 8-inch were only 800 by 600. But man, I tell you what, that's the perfect size for email and IM.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, right.
4: But I was at a shop a few years ago that individual employees only had a single 15-inch. And I'm not, I'm not making this up. It was a digital imaging project I was on. And a, the document would be scanned into the digital imaging system. A lady on the other end would... Need to pull that up. Well, because she needed to basically look at the look at the document and type some stuff into another application, she would reprint it. Yeah, and then throw it away. And she did this every single day. Yeah, and I worked I went with to some people who could The president of the IT organization. And I said, "Can we get her a new screen? Like, nah, it's 150 bucks. Too expensive.
1: Waste of paper." I I I worked with somebody who was a printer who everything that they found online instead of bookmarking it would print it out and then just generate gobs and gobs and gobs of paper and then never go back and look at it.
4: Of course. And do you even go back to look at your bookmarks when you do them in your browser?
1: Yeah, occasionally. But <laughs>
4: okay, yeah. Occasionally. I, I rarely but do. Yeah. You can always Google it again.
3: True. N- yeah, I'm a I'm a big bookmark organizer, but that's because I'm a toy junkie. Uh, well, that's true. Yeah, but that you know, it's I, I fully embrace the fact that I'm an anomaly for my carefully organized groups of bookmarks.
1: Yeah, we're uh, we're just about out of time. Is there any last minute things that you want to mention that we didn't cover, or uh, maybe a, a shout out to a resource or two?
4: Uh, for anybody that has not heard of Dimecast, apart from this uh, this episode, go check it out. You know, what's really been great is getting feedback. You know, I'm always looking for new suggestions, new concepts, uh, new episodes they want. Uh, and if you have any interest in producing something, shoot me an email. All
1: right. Derek, thank you very much, Derek Whitaker, ladies and gentlemen.
4: Thanks, guys. It's been a blast.
1: You bet. And uh, we'll see you next time. DotNet Rocks. <music> 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 Dot Net Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post production. And podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net.